Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are discussing a paper that is titled, What People Really Think About Safety Around Horses, The Relationship Between Risk Perception, Values and Safety Behaviours. And this is by Meredith Chapman, Matthew Thomas and Kirillie Thompson. And the simple summary for this paper is that equestrians continue to debate what they think, believe, feel and value as superior safety first principles during their interactions with horses. Some of these vary, some of these opinions about how dangerous horses really are, the risk and what actions should be taken to minimize risk, and they appear to be determined by many different factors. So this paper explores what humans say about safety around horses and identified basically what we perceive as important or less important to stay safe. They looked at the elements that influence human risk perceptions and behaviors, which I just think this area is really fascinating. And they looked at that during these human horse interactions. Some human safety choices were influenced by financial gain, the level of experience the human has, exposure to safety training, and disregard for potential human injury as a deterrent for any safety change behavior. So a a significant percentage of the participants accepted the risk of human harm around horses, with some choosing to take risks for either sport achievements and others to place their horse's safety above their own. So this paper highlights the benefits for the equestrian industry and whether that's the work or the non-work environment in adopting some safety first principles and standards And these are adopted by many high-risk workplaces, such as including safety training, including risk assessments, improved communications, and adequate supervision. Moreover, if the equestrian industry chose to implement these tried and tested principles, this would assist in mitigating risk and potentially reducing human-horse-related injury and fatalities. And so firstly, thank you, Nancy, for suggesting this paper, because... This gave me a lot of food for thought all week. Um, And especially when it comes to risks and what risks people take, I find that really fascinating in human behavior. But it's something that you see so much of in hindsight when you look at um, horse riding, like how dangerous it is as a sport. Yeah, and they're such large um, animals. They're faster than we are. And I mean... They can kick, bite, or strike. And, you know, any human, even a large man, is not going to be able to fight with an animal that outweighs and outmuscles um, all of us by so much. So you almost have to look at that risk mitigation and those safety principles 
um, you know, to be able to coexist with them. Because, you know, when they're in a frenzy or they're in a flight or fight mode, basically you have to stay out of their way, but you have to be able to have training principles intact to deal with that. And I think that's the thing that really um, impressed me with this paper is that some people override their common sense, um, you know, whether it's making income, winning purse money, um, competing, and not wanting to look weak in front of peer groups. That all overrides the common sense or the inner feeling that tells you this is not a good situation. And we have to, I think, sometimes come back in touch with ourselves and learn to listen to that inner voice and those safety precautions that I think should be taught from the get-go of good safety type situations. And, um, you know, you kind of learn that as you go along, but I think all of us, if we could teach the younger people are what we've learned as you go along, um, maybe it would save on injuries and even fatalities. I totally agree. And I think, I know this is the boring stuff, like when we do health and safety with students, um, it's, yeah. to a lot of people it's boring. If you're a health and safety officer, stay tuned because it'll get interesting. But I know it's like the nitty gritty part, but actually as you read through this paper, you're like, wow, like something so simple. Like if you go to do, um, oh, what do they call it, Nancy, where you get, uh, this will show like how non-sporty I am outside of horses. <laughs> uh, you know, you can get in those little like cars and race around the tracks. Oh, like the, you mean like the indie racers or the. Yeah. yeah. I can't think of the word we use for it here. But anyway, they make you watch a safety video before you get in the car. You know, it's like a little, a little race car thing. But we should really have that in equine as well and maybe some places do and I would love to hear from you like reach out to us if you're in a yard or if you're in a place that actually does um more than just a safety chat to first-time riders like including a video or really talking them through um the safety elements because like reading this paper made me rethink some of the phrases that we've been using equine like safe as houses or bomb proof when we talk about ridden horses or ridden ponies um, because essentially they're still a heavy fast animal they can be up to 500 kilos they can travel up to 50 kilometers an hour they can move sideways so quickly you know they can swing their head and knock you out it's accidents happen and I think just understanding that you know because horses are these sentient beings and they can perceive and they can feel, if something scares them and they want to move away, they can and they will. And it doesn't matter how bomb-proof you think that pony is. If you put an inexperienced child on it and you don't have control of the environment and you don't have proper safety measures in place, then accidents happen. Yeah, and I think what's great about this survey, and this was a 
um, kind of a self-directed survey. It had 1,718 respondents. However, only 1,273 uh, respondents actually completed the survey 100%. All respondents were from 25 different country countries. And um, so this is a worldwide type survey that international self-reporting, 48 questions and five sections. So this was kind of both quantitative and qualitative in nature. So you could get a lot of uh, open-ended responses. And I think they did have 14 open-ended uh, type questions. The first of the sections that Nancy's mentioned um, was looking at general risk. So they found in the study that um, the mean age was of the female respondents in the survey was 45 years, but they were unable to identify a substantial finding between age, gender and horse related risk. Um, it does support previous research of young males being more likely to take general risks, despite the fact that they only had a small sample of equestrian males in the survey, and the mean age of those was actually 50 years. But of the ones that they had, it supported that finding. Um, Horse-related injuries, I found this interesting, is in young, inexperienced female riders under around 20 years of age. They're the most at-risk group for accidents and fatalities. And in general, the sample said that ba basically they could be considered typical in risk outcomes as income accelerates. So where there's money involved, human risk-taking opportunities, like whether it's sport that has um, a purse attached to it or whether it's occupational, that's where people start to take more risks where the money increases. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really... I could understand that, you know, where um, a lot of times you're driven by that income and by the possibility of, um, you know, making money. So you feel like you have to carry on because at that particular point in time, you're a professional, you're being paid for your service. So you can't very well back down and say you're not going to ride this horse. Yeah, or even if you're feeling unwell that morning, but not showing up means you're not paid, then yeah. you're like, oh, you know what, I'll be fine. I'm experienced. I'm going to go in. But I thought it was like quite harrowing, the um, final two sentences on that paragraph where they said that this finding may indicate that humans are more likely to abandon safety first principles and they're prepared to put themselves or others at a higher risk of injury or death to obtain financial gain. They said more research is needed to identify the higher value humans are placing on income compared to their own life and their risk perceptions and willingness to accept this risk. And I just thought that was absolutely like mind-blowing and at the same time, completely understandable, especially you know, with a lot of talk of the cost of living crisis and the pressure people are being put under, you know, they are riskier behaviors going to have to increase 
for people to maybe even survive in a lot of instances. You know, it depends on how much financial pressure they're under. Yeah, and a lot of times they threw that safety first principles out the window. So one of the first safety first principles was training. So instead of focusing on uh, training methods and um, not so much like, um, oh, what would you call it, Kate? Like not so much improving equitation or um, the riding ability of that horse if you know when you go maybe to a new facility the horse takes a little while to calm down they're very excitable being in a new location well you that could be part of your training is to just make trips to other farms to get Mm -hmm. them used to arriving at new locations and a lot of times that is not done they just go with the flow and know how the horse is going to be and they make sure they wear a helmet and maybe even a safety vest because they know the first 20 minutes to the first hour is going to be like explosive so um yeah and you know that's so true because habituating horses is really important And we particularly found this because my mare notoriously wouldn't load. Um, And then she got better for a while through just, you know, feeding her in the trailer, that positive reinforcement, loading her and letting her out again. It wasn't always a journey. It's so important to do things like that or like load, you know, drive for a minute or two, come back out again and just keep it positive the whole time. But if you're only ever moving your horse, and it's to go competing or it's to go where there's like high energy the minute they get out of the trailer at that setting, then you're going to actually increase that risk because you have an animal that's like either anxious or anticipating um, the scenario because they've learned over time, okay, I'm getting in the trailer or even it starts before that. They're washing me. They're really cleaning me, really grooming me. You know, something's coming something's happening yep and you're a little nervous because you're competing and there's expectations there and a little pressure so I think the one place we chance on is training in the in towards behavior modification in that horse and I think that's the least um you know, the least area of where we concentrate our training on. We're always training for the next horse show, the next uh, ring appearance or cross country ride. We're not actually uh, training towards the behavior of that horse and bringing their energy level down in certain situations. And that goes along with safety principles uh, number two which is risk assessment we have to be honest with ourselves and say I have got a crazy actor here that doesn't like to leave the farm what are going to be my steps to mitigate this risk and you might just load them in the trailer every day for two weeks and take them for a ride and bring them home and unload them. But, you know, we tend to say that takes too much time, too mm-hmm. much effort. We'd rather be riding. But a lot of times 
that can mitigate getting injured unloading or loading because those are the one of the most dangerous times is being in a horse trailer with a horse that mm -hmm. doesn't want to be there. I think that's so true. And I think if we're not like these little examples Nancy and I are giving would be terms like putting safety controls in place. So that's where, you know, there's been some more experience for you and the horse and actually doing what you're asking them to do they're trained you're training as you do that as well um but what I thought about this as well when it comes to safety controls is the use of helmets which we'll get to a little bit further down but like how often do we actually go through step by step how the helmet should properly fit mm -hmm. and even you know are your boots fitting properly like do we check children that come to rising centers that their boots are fitted properly you know that they're not going to be actually sliding back and forth in the boot and then their foot has no proper perch on the stirrup when they're riding and I think like my brain basically started running with all the different things that could cause risk but when I thought of that I was like how often as well with children do you get them half a size up or maybe not a half size up but their feet grow so, you know, you tend to get them a shoe that might be a little bit roomier so you can get more time or more wear out of it. And then what, what knock-on effect does that even have? Yeah, and, and, you know, even the way the tack fits, you know, do you have um, something that could get caught on a screw-up mm -hmm. as you go by? Or, you know, is there some part of the tack that does not fit properly and I see sometimes a lot of people that have those um oh what are they called cheek a full cheek like snaffles and those ends are are exposed and those can even get caught on a part of the saddle or you know, and then you're in a really bad situation. So you can buy those little pieces of leather, those keepers that prevent that from being able to get snagged on another part of the tack. So little safety things like that can make all the difference because once a horse goes through a panic situation, you remember that fear response cannot be eliminated fully it's just always under the surface to to come back again and um, the third uh, safety first principle is assessing rider horse match how often people get a horse they that they're overhorsed or um, the match is just not a good combination between personalities. And once you have a horse, it's hard to get rid of them because you get attached and all that. But there's always a certain personality type for every horse. I think that's true as well. And it's an interesting one as well, because when you mentioned saddle fit, you know how we talked before about having, you know, also seeing the rider on the horse with the saddle fit? Yeah. That's in those situations where we do just have one rider for that horse. But something that, um, you know, they have identified in the past as being risky is horse share, where, you know, people will like rent a horse or share a horse with someone to try and mitigate some of the costs of owning a horse. And that can be quite 
tricky because you're potentially sharing tech. Maybe you have your own, um, but you're just increasing, you know, are you actually suited to that horse and who's making that decision? Is it the owner of that horse is like, oh, they're going to pay. I've had no one else that's interested in sharing and I need to mitigate the costs of the livery. So, you know, this will work out perfectly, but the horse and the rider aren't matched where maybe the horse is, you know, a thoroughbred and the rider is more of a novice, in which case that can be a recipe for disaster so quickly. Or maybe the rider is not suited to the horse and it's too big or um, just there's a mismatching when it comes to actually lining that up. And that's something that's really important to try and identify. Yes, sometimes we let the business dealings of the equine world override our common sense um, when it comes to safety, because that, uh, that's a great point, Kate. That leads to the fourth uh, principle of enriched safety communications to enhance risk mitigation during horse-human interactions. And that's more or less just having a mentor that can talk you through things instead of you always assuming that you're doing the right thing. Um, there was a part of this uh, paper that said the most experienced riders sometimes take the most risk, but in the other end of that spectrum, they also question what they're doing more than what novice riders do. And I think that that is so true because the more I think you're into horses and you're experience, experiencing them, I think you question because you know all the variables that could be in mm -hmm. You know, you know, you You've don't seen the bad things. <sighs> yeah. And I think, you know, what a complicated creature we're dealing with a prey animal you're trying to house in a 12 by 12 stall and ride. And you're trying to also keep an eye on the outside environment, like a crop duster coming through mm -hmm. when you're riding. I mean, you can't control everything. So you've got to make sure you're evenly matched with that horse and you develop a good trusting relationship that's only accomplished by training. Yeah. I actually love, there's a sentence in this paper um, that really made me laugh when I read it, but it says, if it looks and feels good, humans are willing to take the risk despite yeah. any known or unplanned negative consequences. <laughs> and I just thought that was brilliant. Like research found that those who participate in high risk sports and Horse riding is such a high-risk sport. They're predominantly extroverts with type A personality characteristics. They've added in that they tend to be emotionally stable, which I think is kind of them. And that some, some sports obviously are within the equestrian world are perceived higher risk than others. But it's just so true. Like if it looks good, if it makes you happy, like you're more likely to do it knowing you shouldn't. Yep. And um, oh, that is so true because <laughs> a lot of times too, it's that human need to belong to a group yeah. 
a lot of times you're in, say, the eventing world and, you know, it's your turn to go. And even though you're second guessing yourself, you know, you want to belong. You don't want to and so um, I think that all plays a part. They have a great chart. Now, this paper is open access, and they have a great chart on helmet use, um, training, uh, change your tack or gear, and the least amount of control was securing your environment. So... Mm -hmm. I was talking about earlier, if you can just realize a lot of times you can't control that umbrella popping open or a gunshot going off in the distance. So you've got to be prepared and have your horse prepared to be able to work through that. I'll never forget like having a horse that was reared in the country and um, when we went to do, I can't even remember what it was, but we were doing something where we paraded around the tiny little town that I'm from and <laughs> the brick changed color at one point. So it was like all tarmac and then there was a little bit of red brick and then tarmac. And the red brick was probably like the width of a pedestrian crossing because it was just leading from like a hotel to a restaurant. And I remember like just out of nowhere, like, I never perceived she was going to stop and she just slammed on the brakes and then jumped over it to clear it. And I'd had this horse for years and I never thought that was going to happen. Like you just, you can't be prepared for the little things, but that's why you have to be vigilant. You can't be slouched, you know, like not paying attention, looking around, like you're also responsible as an advocate for them and what could happen to them. So you have to be switched on. You can't get complacent. And the helmets one, like I wanted to come back to that again because I I really hope this is something that people are getting better at and fitting helmets. But I remember doing a cross country once and my horse refused to jump a wall. And when I came back around to the wall again, they like half refused and then they jumped from a standstill. And it happened so suddenly that their heads hit me in the face and it hit the peak of my helmet and it actually knocked my helmet down over my face. And my helmet was tight fitting, but the force of their heads pulled it down and then they're cantering off after the jump. And I have no idea where I'm going. I'm like, with one hand trying to pull my helmet up and I must have been maybe 11 or 12. Um. So again, it's just like, oh, when you look back and you think of all, all the things that can happen. And even one of the biggest ones that stand out to me is I remember we were doing a hunter trials one year and it had been a particularly wet summer and the hunter trials ran in the August and the ground was really soft where we were doing the hunter trials. And I remember, you know, we're sent in to walk it and we're, we're like young teenagers and we're walking the ground and it's soft under our feet and I don't weigh three or 400 kilos. And I was in the chute ready. I was going in next and a girl from my riding school was in ahead of me. And as she came over that last jump, her horse's two feet sunk up to the fetlock into the ground and the horse flipped and landed on her. Oh. And 
I always thought to myself after that, how many adults walked that course? I mean, it was a big competition. There was a lot of people involved. And how how did that happen? You know, why why did no one say, listen, the ground is really soft and we're we're getting them to jump? You know, like yeah. it's now four, three, four hundred kilos at force hitting the ground. And having to wait and thank God she was okay. And very luckily she was okay. And I actually think because the ground was so soft, she was okay. And yeah. because the horse landed on her, but I'm that was towards the end of my riding career. It was towards the end of my competing. That was potentially the last competition I did <laughs> because I went in afterwards and I jumped two jumps and then I saluted the judges and I left. Because I I knew I wasn't going down the bottom half of the course where the ground was that soft. But like you're having to make those decisions because an ambulance took her away and then they call next. And I'm supposed to come in and jump that course. That's crazy. Because, you know, um, the part of this brought up the Dunning and Kruger theory and that was a theory that came out in 1999 and I'm just going to read it from the paper so I don't mess it up but it says recent research has highlighted the potential for participants in equestrian sports to overestimate their level of knowledge or skill sometimes we just do not know what we do not know Mm -hmm. and David Dunning and Justin Kruger, and they're both psychologists, uh, they explored this theory in 1999, and they described their findings as the Dunning-Kruger effect. It is simply defined as a cognitive bias or a blind spot, whereby humans have a tendency to overestimate their knowledge or ability And this theory suggests that the most competent humans usually underestimate their level of capabilities. So, Kate, you had the common sense and you probably, you know, had the cognitive ability to say, I don't I'm going to safeguard my horse and I'm going to safeguard myself. I think I always tell my granddaughters It's all about self-preservation. And if you get that feeling, you should not be getting on the horse because your fear is going to affect their emotional state. So I think that's so important um, that you follow that inward intuition, if you want to call it that. And how many times do we see people who maybe have only been in horses six months make bad choices and, and not, you know, doubt themselves. And if they could only do that, you know, cause you see the 30 year equestrians where they, they'll walk away from things and say, mm-hmm. no, I'm not going to, not going to endanger this or do this. And whether it's a really windy day or a really muddy field, they're going to walk away from it because they know what can happen and what all the variables are that can enter in. And I'm always taking footing into account because it only takes one thing 
in the environment happening to spook them, to make them go down and possibly break a leg or have a life-threatening or career-ending injury. Yeah, and I just couldn't live with knowing that I took a risk and my horse then had to be put to sleep because I took a risk. And I know that's something that's difficult because sometimes we don't know that those are the risks we're taking in the moment. Um, But it is, it's something that I think is really hard to come back from, even to emotionally try and deal with that if you end up having a horse breakdown. And like they happen accidentally too. And, you know, we see them in competition and things like that. You know, there there could be a weakness there that we didn't know in the bone and suddenly they go but it's worth as Nancy said knowing when to walk away and knowing it's not worth it because I mean these were I don't know what you say amateur competitions but there wasn't big purse money behind them but I had spent you know maybe two and a half three months preparing for this competition alone um and I just I remember coming out and my dad was always like really pushed me to compete in horse riding but was really level-headed about it like he was just like oh it'd be nice if you would and then I would be like all right I will um but I remember coming out of it and he was like oh um we put a lot of work (laughs) into you doing that like into me just saying (laughs) adios and I I just looked at him and I was like there was no way and he was like I was surprised you went in at all well so it was just nice to know like you know, you have to support people's decisions too. And be like, look, you make the call. You're the person on the horse. You're the one that has to do these things. Yeah. And we've all done stupid things. I mean, you know, I think back, it's, it is a miracle that I survived the early racetrack years because they threw you up on a horse and off you went and you get older you get more pickier and you become more choosy about where you ride and who you ride for and things like that. And I think that's a normal progression. And, you know, hopefully you learn from your mistakes and you just get better and better at assessing those uh, riskier situations and what you want to take on and what you don't. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's one example where I definitely come out in a better light. But I mean, when I was probably between 12 and 14, I used to go swimming with my horse, which is deadly dangerous. (laughs) I would not recommend. (laughs) But me and my cousin used to just take our horses down to the water, get into the ocean, you know, go out to where they were swimming. And then sometimes we would get off and swim beside them. Sometimes we would stay on them, (laughs) you know, like just, oh my God, when I think back, I'm like, I don't think it should happen today, (laughs) but very grateful that I have some great memories where I survived in the end. Me too. I'm with you. And I think they say ignorance is bliss, right? Yeah. And when you're a kid, you get up so much easier than when you're an adult and you fall off. Yep. But um, this is a open access. Um, I think I think that's all I really for it, Kate. I'll definitely put a link on the homepage. Um, I did want to add that there's no demographics of this risk taking. I mean, age, gender, um, it was just basically... Um, 
under the age of 20 up to 20 female amateur riders tend to have more severe and often um, fatal accidents. And then um, after that, it was pretty much, um, you know, open. I mean, the demographics were not really consistently related to the risk taking and the risk management. And I think part of that is just the fact that it's it's kind of not um, a controlled environment that this testing occurs in because horses are so high risk and can be so unpredictable. So I think that would be my hypothesis for why there's that variation. And, um, you know, there's no set like this group is more at risk than the other because I think the risk is high overall. Uh, but the paper does say there's some proactive risk adverse elements that can improve safer human horse interactions. And the three that they say are the first one, quality safety training, coaching and leadership to embed horse handling, riding safety first principles. The second one is a strict adherence to known safety practices. So that's what's tried and tested. And regardless of your skill level or experience, stick to those safety practices. And then the third one is the use of higher level safety controls, like Nancy mentioned, that rider horse match, having supervision, the environment evaluation and risk assessment, and then not just personal protective equipment, because just putting on a helmet doesn't mean you're safe. There are fatalities with helmets. Um, they said that these are kinds of the lowest treatment for risk mitigation. So, you know, start with these and I think you're just increasing your level of awareness and your protocols in place to try and mitigate that risk. Yep. I think that's perfect and a good note to end on. And um, yeah, it's just a, a great paper to read and just think about because like Kate, gave me a lot to think about and look back over the years and I could remember uh, back to where I first started with horses and now where we're at and how much has evolved and changed and all that in the way I think about it mm -hmm. so, uh, but that's all I had and if anybody has any questions or there's research you want us to do. Make sure you either uh, send Kate a message or, or send me one and we'll get on it. And if anyone does have a safety procedure in place or does have a protocol they use, I would love to hear about it. Even just to hear that you have one. I mean, you don't need to tell me things and outs, but it would just be great to know that this is something that is, um, I guess, taking more flight in the industry. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, Kate, thanks for joining in and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much, Nancy. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.